I've noticed a number of peculiar incidents among the members of the student body, all having to do with rock and roll music. Now, if you don't think this song is the greatest song ever, I will fight you. Ted Leo and Amy Mann seem like an unlikely pairing. He's a punk rocker, she's a singer-songwriter. But as the both, the duo make beautiful music together. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. The both join us in the studio for a lighthearted conversation about politics, Twitter, and the bronze fonds. Then Greg and I review the new album from Weezer. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and Jim, later on in the show, we're going to review this new Weezer album. And I still remember in 2010 when Weezer singer-songwriter leader Rivers Cuomo came into our studio to respond to some questions. That was a good day, that yeah. We had. Yeah. You know, we called him out in some reviews. You know, I said he was pandering to his audience, and he took those questions head-on. I really give him credit for doing that. Uh, we're going to find out later on in the show what Weezer is up to now. But first, we have some music news. The world has gone mad today, and good's bad today. And is white today, and black's white today. And most guys today, the woman prize today. I just silly gigolo. And though I'm not a great romancer, I know you're bound to answer when, when we, we propose. propose. Anything goes. Go. Go. That is Anything Goes from the new Duets album by Tony Bennett and Lady Gaga, Cheek to Cheek. We are reporting on this phenomenon because Tony Bennett, at age 88, breaks his own record as the oldest living artist to land a number one record on the U.S. Billboard album chart. (laughs) He broke his own record, Jim. He had owned the previous record with his previous album at age 85, which went to number one. Now he's doing it again with Lady Gaga, an entire album of classic songs. It's doing wonders for both careers, Bennett at 88, reaching a new audience, and Lady Gaga developing some credibility as a singer who can handle these jazz standards Mm. in the company of one of the masters. You look at the charts this fall, is it the mid-60s again? You've got Bennett up there on the charts, and you've also got Barbara Streisand just coming off a number one album. Streisand just set a record. Her recent duets album, Partners, she's on there with people like Stevie Wonder and Michael Buble and and Elvis Presley, of all people, singing with the ghost of Elvis. That landed number one on the Billboard 200 chart, giving her number one albums in each of the last six decades. You've got to go back to October of 1964 when Streisand had her first number one album, People. I know it's one of your favorites, Jim. Uh, at all of one month old, I was very high on it, yes. But we're back to business as usual this week because we've got country king uh, Blake Shelton back at the top of the charts with his second number one album, Bringing Back the Sunshine. Greg, that's a little bit of Outcast, one of the big headline draws at both Lollapalooza and the Austin City Limits Festival this year. Why are we talking about that? Both of those festivals are run by an Austin, Texas-based company called C3 Presents. C3, because it's controlled by three guys named Charlie. The New York Times had a scoop the other day that C3 
appears to be ready to sell out to Ticketmaster Live Nation, sell 51% of its company to the largest concert promoter and ticketing company in the world. Live Nation is, according to many who work there, they've used this phrase, the death star of the music industry, corporate consolidation. They would like to control everything from the 150 capacity club to the 30,000 seat arena to the hundreds of thousands of people festivals, both in Europe and the United States. If they succeed in buying C3, they will have a major stake in the festival market in the United States. Well, what it does, Jim, is it further consolidates this monopoly position that Live Nation has in the market by eating up the number one independent concert promoter in the United States. They now have a massive stake in not only promoting concerts, ticketing concerts, but artist management as well, and the recording industry because they have these mega deals with artists like Madonna and Jay-Z and U2. So it's never a good thing when too much power is concentrated in one set of hands, not only for the artists who have fewer options in terms of where they can go and play, but also for the fans who uh, stand to have yet higher ticket prices as a result of this deal. Greg, that's a little bit of the song Intro by the XX from their 2009 debut. They were guests on Sound Opinions. Very quiet, unassuming, soft-spoken people, but they are up in arms about a giant fashion brand using a song that sounds eerily similar to Intro. And I mean the melody, the beat, the rhythm, everything sounds the same. It's unclear yet if they're going to take legal action against this fashion house, but it's not the first time that we've seen indie artists who refuse to sell their music to commercials simply be imitated by those same commercials. This happened to Beach House in 2012, and most famously it happened to Tom Waits when a chip commercial just kind of did something that sounded Waits-like. We should ask our listeners, do you think that it is troubling when an artist is imitated in a commercial, or do you think it's kind of an homage? I mean, the fact that anybody would imitate the XX is kind of impressive. Give us a call on our hotline. Let us know your thoughts. Opinions, and that's the song The Gambler, the leadoff track from a new supergroup of sorts, Ted Leo and Amy Mann, otherwise known as The Both. Now, Ted and Amy have both had very successful solo careers. Leo as the political punk rocker with the band The Pharmacist, Mann, a recent guest on Sound Opinions, as a singer songwriter whose folk rock melodies have been a hit on the radio and in the movies, most notably those Paul Thomas Anderson movies like Magnolia. Like us, Greg, this duo shares a love of comedy, and they cemented their mutual admiration society on social media. 
The both came by the Sound Opinion studio recently, and I asked Ted Leo and Amy Mann about tweeting their way into a new band. We did know each other before Twitter, but um, <laughs> but we we started interacting online, you know, more than than we were speaking in real life yeah, at a certain point in time. Yeah. yeah, got to know each other better that way. Yeah. What, what kind of hashtags? Yeah. What kind of stuff, Amy? Were you trading? Well, I don't quips, pun, yeah, puns. It's a lot of puns, you know. Appreciation of of funny misspellings of things. Twitter's the land yeah. of bad puns. That's yeah. mostly what it's for. So you're doing the 140 character limit. There's not a lot. You can't write a song in 140 characters, but you can trade, you know, one-liners, quips, quips sure. yeah. one-liners. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the shared sense of humor seems to be something. This is a this is interesting because I think it's an aspect of both of your personalities that maybe isn't overly apparent in in your songwriting, and yet it is something that was essential to I think the two of you coming together. The perhaps mutual appreciate appreciation of comedy in general, and I think when people come to your shows. The sense that you two have this chemistry, was that always there? Was that essential to this this bond as a songwriting team? Well, for me it was. I mean, I'd seen Ted perform live a lot, and I really... I, I thought he was a very, very funny person, and I, you know, I considered him one of my sort of comedy adjacent music friends because most of my friends are comedians. But I felt like Ted was really, really funny, and th- I have to say, like that, it was a big factor in wanting to work with him and wanting to perform with him because he's so hilarious on stage, and it was like, you know, like for me, that felt like you're really getting a lot, like a lot of bang for your your on stage <laughs> buck. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel the same way when we. Uh... We played a show in Philadelphia where a drummer of my band, The Pharmacist, lives, and he was at the at the show, and he said to me afterwards with, with humor, oh, glad you finally have somebody to talk to up there. <laughs> <laughs> but, Ted, you also have an, at times, uh, scary intensity on stage. I won't forget ever <laughs> the Pitchfork show you did here in Chicago where you came out, and you hit the stage, just exploded, and you hit your forehead on the mic. And the whole rest of the set, you spent bleeding all over your face and the microphone <laughs> and the ground. And it's like, man, this guy is giving it. <laughs> Yeah, there's been a uh, there's been a, a distressing lack of blood on the both doors so far. I might have to I might have to remedy that yeah, soon. Well, well, she's a boxer. That's true. Yeah. I've been on the receiving end of a jab or two. The reason we said Amy's one of our favorite guests ever is just we don't ever want to get her mad. You right. know, we know what she can do. You know how, uh, however, I can get it. Why don't we we hear a song before we get much further? Because we have a lot of questions about how you came to write these tunes, but we might as well dive right into the music. What are you going to play? Well, we're, this, the first song is uh, Volunteers of America, which is our next single, if... Theoretically. It, yeah, yeah, if singles even exist. In quotes. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so you want to just jump into it? It, yeah. it features the fuzz bass, so watch out, people. Look out. <laughs> the contract's a joke, but when you see smoke, you run toward the fire because you must. And they all called your name when the crash finally came and left you up the dust I saw you walking in silence down to the bridge but nothing went over the side so I guess to someone with your heritage withdraw like you said is implied Calling 
Volunteers of America from the both. That is uh, Amy Mann, Ted Leo, and Matt Mayhall on drums. Amy uh, on the power, fuzz bass. Power trio, yes. The fuzz <laughs> bass. Fuzzy. Power trio. Yeah. Very John Entwistle-like here for a few minutes there. <laughs> and, and the thing is, both of you have carved out these amazing careers as songwriters and work pretty much as... You know, very prolific songwriters in terms of, you know, you, you get a song, you finish it, you, you don't really collaborate a lot. Now you're collaborating. How was it handing off the work to somebody else or, or, or actually putting heads together to finish a song together? It was great. <laughs> I'm seeing you roll, roll your eyes in alarm. No, no not in alarm, in like, in, uh, in relief, you know? Yeah, I think we were both really ready to not be the the sole provider of finishing the song. That's pretty, to quote uh, Matthew Sweet, I was pretty sick of myself. Yeah. <laughs> by, the yeah, time yeah. We, uh, by the time we started down this road. Yeah, I, feel, I think we were, we were really in the same sort of mood at the same time. I have a lot of faith and confidence in, in Ted as a songwriter and uh, as just as a person, too, because I, I think the, you know, just the emotional aspects of of collaborating you hand over a thing and maybe the other person is like well, I don't know you know or they are they taking a place you didn't expect but I yeah. think we both were really too ready to embrace embrace that and, and yeah. not have a lot of ego around it saying that we were both in the same place doesn't necessarily mean that this could have happened were it not I think with 
each of us specifically with each other as well because the, I think the personal aspect is a big part of it for me, feeling comfortable enough working with someone uh, where you really – we really make a conscious effort to like even like just verbalize like, okay, egos to the side – you know, we're sitting at the table and we're we're working on a a, a puzzle that we're going to make as good as we can. You know, and and there's you, you you have to give up your attachment to your kind of first ideas, your second ideas. You know, <laughs> and you trust that the other person uh, has ideas that are at least as val- uh, as valuable as yours, and uh, together try and come up with something. And you together. trust that the other person isn't going to not embrace one of your ideas just out of pure like. Absolutely, I want it to be mine. No design, no design by committee here either. Like we have to really be happy with what we come up with at the end. have much more with Ted Leo and Amy Mann in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Stay tuned because later in the show, we review the new record from Rivers Cuomo and Weezer. is supported by Beats Music, a new music service offering curated playlists, personalized music recommendations, and access to over 20 million songs. Learn more about a 14-day trial of Beats at the App Store or at beatsmusic.com. Beats Music, the right music for right now. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And our guest this week is The Both, the collaboration by Amy Mann and Ted Leo. 
Both Ted and Amy have very individual styles that can easily be typecast and dismissed as the political guy and the folky girl, and that can sometimes be a difficult perception to shake. I asked Amy Mann if being in the both allows her to explore a different side of her musical personality. I love writing a song that, in a voice that I think is going to be more Ted's, or, you know, in fact, I mean, Volunteers of America, you know, the the two up-tempo songs were two songs that, that I that I kind of started, and but, you know, but sort of like, because I knew that, I don't know, picturing Ted sing it was just, it just made it mm. easier. I mean, anytime I try to write an up-tempo song, every time I sing it, it just ends up sounding like a lilting little folk number, and that drives <laughs> me crazy. Yeah, I actually push back on the on the expectations idea a little bit. Though. Not that people, I don't push back on the idea that people have them. I push back on them on them themselves because I feel like both of our work is is actually, if I can say, like more nuanced than that kind of, of broad course. brush, of you know. And I also every now and then I I might write like a, a f- pure political screed, a la you know. Reaganomics killing me. Reaganomics killing me. Reaganomics killing me. Reaganomics killing you. you know, kind of thing, you know? <laughs> oh, the 80s. Yeah. They were so much fun. <laughs> but more often than not, it's like it's through the... You know, when I'm looking at something political, I'm looking at it through the lens of of a human experience with it, and so I try to write about things through that human experience, and I think that actually kind of dovetails with Amy's oeuvre as well. But I got a message from the hummingbird. He gave me a warning in disguise. He told me they're marching on Monsanto, but the same. What's interesting to me, and I think you said this, Amy, when you were here a few years ago, there's like a gene in a songwriter. It's almost like a completist gene. Like you you can almost visualize the whole song once you've started it. Like I know where this is going. I know where it's going to end. And to hand that over to somebody else has got to be, it sounds like it was very different from the way you would normally operate in a song. And to sort of give up the completion of that task. Well, I think the problem that I have with my own writing sometimes is that if I start something, I will kind of know where where it it goes, but it often goes kind of along the same lines as where it starts. And when I hand it off to Ted, he takes it to a place that is completely different than I would have ever imagined, and, and and it's always the right place. Like it's always really interesting and exciting. Harmonically, it's totally different from what I would come up with. Lyrically, he's got a different twist. It's like, and it makes it really fresh and interesting. So it's not, you know, just me, 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 me. And I think that these things are complementary with each other as well, you know, because I feel the same way about, you know, when I hand something off to you, but it never feels like a, like a weird, you know, choppy left turn. It's just, a, it's just a, a path that I didn't see, yeah. you know. And it's true.
Volunteers, which we just played, was something that the, the original kind of vocal melody idea was from a little like 5 a.m. voice memo that I made. And I didn't actually picture it uh, as upbeat a song as that. And But uh, Amy took it and wrote the chorus kind of first, I think, right? It sort of made it With power poppy, I guess. Yeah, yeah. and uh, that was nice. That, that op- you know, opened up a vein for me to work with. But in, in the other direction, something that we both discussed that I think is a good example of this is, is uh, No Sir, where uh, kind of up to the big change for the, for the bridge was something that Amy was working on. And uh, when it got handed off to me, my sense of it was just bridge, <laughs> left mm-hmm. turn into a bridge. And I don't know if that's something that you, you know. But it's, it, it sort of works as a bridge and a chorus all, the, all at the same time, and it takes a lot of twists and turns, and it's really, like, to me, it's really, really interesting, the most musically interesting thing, and a great complement to to the sort of verses that I had started, which, you know, had this, like, creepy, paranoid, you know, quiet but paranoid, so mm-hmm. there was, like, a weird energy under them that then, you know, exploded when you got a, a hold of it. Do you want to play that song? Do you have that yeah. in your, yeah. Uh, yeah. no, you, sir? Uh, I think we can do that song.
That is No Sir by the Both on Sound Opinions, Amy Mann, Ted Leo, and Matt Mayhall on drums. So we were, we're using this phrase a couple of times. I think we said you guys were kicking songs back and forth or passing songs mm-hmm. back and forth. How did you physically do that? Were, were you trading files and using yeah. a computer yeah, program? We, or all of, yeah, all options. I mean, we... Good old voice memo, but we also wrote in, in person. Yeah, we were touring a lot over the last couple of years with me solo supporting Amy, so... We didn't actually write on the road per se, but there were plenty of opportunities for us to be in the same place. So, you know, I would come out some days early or, you know, whatever, and we would work on some stuff in the same place. And then also, as you said, trading voice memos or we uh, video chat. Really? Yeah. You know, what's interesting to me about this record and what's successful about it is that it sounds like a band. It doesn't sound like there's the Amy song, there's a Ted song. The touchstone that I want to fall back on, this has come up before. Early Thin Lizzy (laughs) has been like, okay, we kind of had this general idea of that's kind of the general... And so, hence the sound, and hence the band. Talk about that, that Thin Lizzy connection. I don't think anybody could have predicted that as sort of being a mutual touchstone. You know, for me, coming up with initial ideas for us to work on... My thinking was really almost childish. Uh, I was thinking, okay, Ted Leo, he writes everything really fast, and he's got a lot of chords. So, and he does like he does shuffles, and I sort of felt like Thin Lizzy would be a, a place to kind of start as a, you know, something to to use as an example. And also, we had heard like Ted was playing the first Thin Lizzy record one time in the uh, when we were on the road here in Chicago. I yeah, think. here in Chicago. The song that we ended up covering, Honesty is No Excuse, was on. And I, and I really could hear, like, you know, in my mind, I thought, this is what it would kind of sound like if, if Ted and I had a band together. Up to now, I live my life Drinking beer so slowly Sometimes wine No God, air, water, or sunshine And so that, that's why I started using Thin Lizzy as a, or, you know, just like a shuffle, like the boys are back in town. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and then tried to put as many chords as possible into uh, <laughs> whatever I was working on. You want to make sure Ted was happy with the, with the relationship, yeah. so more chords were better. Is that what you're it's saying? It's so dumb. I know. It's like Actually, really offensive. I'm sure really, you're totally offended. No, no, not, no. I think it's, I look, I, I trip myself up in that regard sometimes. But, you know, like the... The Boys Are Back in Town is, of course, what everybody immediately thinks of with Thin Lizzy. And that's not not part of the picture that of, of Thin Lizzy that we're talking about. But those first couple of albums, self-titled and Shades of a Blue Orphanage, yeah. are really weird and spooky and rhythmically interesting. And there's a lot more kind of weird Irish folky stuff going on. Right. And uh, that was, I think that was something that we thought, like, oh, this could be like a sonic palette that yeah. we could pull from. A blue gal. Times right for slaughter Buffalo gal 
We've got the both in the studio. How about another song? What are we going to hear? Uh, you want to do Milwaukee since yeah. it's our. Um, sure. Oh, now we have, to, we have influence. to talk about this one. Yeah. This is my a, shuffle. My uh, many, many chords. As a rock <laughs> critic, I have to say this is. I don't know whether I love this song or hate it. Okay. Because <laughs> it's take really. She, you know, this business of, of, of paying homage in song to the Arthur Fonzarelli statue in Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. That's so weird. <laughs> That's right. Is it? I mean, part of it is that, well, it was just a, it's it sort of become this joke that we return to over and over because we became obsessed with figuring out why is that statue so awful? Like it's yeah. a bronze. <laughs> like how is it different from other bronzes? And we realized like first it's, it's under life size. So, mm-hmm. it, it's, so it's like got this, it's sort of delicate. Yeah. It's a yeah. weird uncanny valley, you know, kind of thing. It's like almost, almost life size, but you know, Henry Winkler, is not the tallest guy on the planet to begin with, so it's just slightly even shorter and strange. <laughs> and the the second one was it's also painted like his jacket is. It's a windbreaker. Like it looks like a member's only windbreaker instead of a leather jacket. <laughs> and the jeans look kind of acid washed, and they're sort of a little too baggy around the thigh. And it's 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 really like very un. It's uncool. Yeah. And he was supposed to be cool. It's very uncool. Mm-hmm. And also teeth. Yeah. Yeah, teeth. Teeth on a bronze. That's a terrible idea. He's smiling, and it's you can see each tooth. It's I've r- noticed since we figured this out that if you most good bronzes, the, even if the mouth is open, it's just the space. You don't you don't see delineation. Yeah, or like ah. a ridge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Have you heard from the sculptor? No, 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 no. 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 Oh. There's a Twitter account that claims to be the bronze fonds. It keeps tweeting at us. Bronze <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't reply. Um, I just at the risk of overstating this thing too. Like, there's an interesting urban phenomenon. I think that when before the spread of suburbia, when cities like Milwaukee and Chicago sort of weren't melding in between the two of them, and each had its own identity. But you know, you now find around the country a lot of these situations where there's a Chicago and there's a Milwaukee. There's a Boston and there's a Providence. There's a New York and there's a Philadelphia, and not to diss Chicago, New York, and uh, uh, Boston, but it, oftentimes there's a lot of cool stuff that goes on in these smaller neighbors where things are a little bit cheaper. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. And, and yeah. It's a little or a weirder. lot cheaper. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, I, they often uh, don't get the shout-outs that they deserve. Yeah. Oh, Milwaukee <laughs> rocks. It's a great city. It, it just that's a weird statue. Yeah. Weird. <laughs> Absolutely. I, okay, what do we play in Milwaukee? <laughs>
pictures of itself And the man you were friend turned the night on its end Like your time was a bottomless well But you grabbed me and said Come on back from the ledge for a spell You can tell Laugh in the dark at the sound of a bell You can tell Burning inside of the self, it's a new piece burning inside of the self, it's a new piece burning inside of the self, it's a new piece burning inside of the self. Milwaukee from the both, Amy Mann, Ted Leo, Matt Mayhall. Great to have you guys in here. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank, Thank you. you very much Thanks for, for having, having us. us. This is very fun. Saving up for the big one. Ooh. You'll be bigger than big sun. watch videos and hear bonus songs from the both, visit us at soundopinions.org. And while you're there, check out Amy Mann's 2013 solo performance on the show. Coming up, does Weezer still have it? And what will Greg take with him to the proverbial desert island? We'll find out in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
that disco sucks I ended up with nobody and I started feeling dumb Maybe I should play the lead guitar and Pat should play the drums Take me back, back to the shack Back to the strap with the lightning strap Kicking the door, no hardcore Rocking out like it's night Welcome back to Sound Opinions. That is a song called Back to the Shack by Weezer from its ninth album, Everything Will Be Alright in the End. It's the lead-off single, Greg. Weezer, of course, debuted in the midst of the alternative rock era, a post-grunge band doing an older kind of power pop and striking it big with the self-titled 94 debut, Weezer or the Blue Album. It was produced by Rick Ocasek, the leader of the Cars. They put out a record in 96 that remains an emo underground cult iconic record called Pinkerton. And then nothing. They disappeared for a good long time as Rivers Cuomo, the band's leader, singer, songwriter, disappeared and went to Harvard. He wasn't just sitting around doing nothing. The group reemerged in 2001 with another self-titled record, the so-called Green Album, once again produced by Ocasek. And there's been six records since. Now comes album number nine, their first since 2010, the Hurley record, named after the character on Lost. So it's been a while. For this record, they apparently wrote 200 songs that they considered, recorded 20 of them, and settled on a final 13. They returned to work with Ocasek again for the third time, the first since 2001, and they had a concept album of sorts. According to Cuomo, there's a trio of themes on this album. His relationship to other people, mainly his band members, his relationship to women, and his relationship to his father, a Pentecostal preacher from whom he was estranged for a long time. We'll give our opinions on the record in a minute, but let's hear a song first. This is Da Vinci by Weezer from Everything Will Be Alright in the End on Sound Opinions.
That's Da Vinci from the new Weezer album, Everything Will Be Alright in the End. And in that song, Back to the Shack, Jimmy talks about going back to 94, right down to the producer that produced the Blue album with Rick Ocasek. Yeah, yeah. And everything's going to be all right. You know, you mentioned the relationships he's talking about in this album. I think the most important relationship on this album is the one he has to his fans. He's saying, I apologize for everything I've done in the last 10 years. I promise I'll get it right. I'm sorry for Hashpipe. That was pretty much it. And I, I think he gets a lot of stick from his fans because he's not producing wrenchingly honest albums like Pinkerton was or songs as good as the ones that were on the Blue Album. And he's constantly trying to live up those to those first two studio albums. And if I were to advise Rivers Cuomo, I would say forget about what everybody else thinks and do what you love. I mean, he writes great pop rock melodies. He is a brilliant songwriter when he just sticks to writing melodies and hooks. I'm not saying it's going to change the world or save the world or anything, but it's pleasurable on its own terms. He's trying to do too much on this record in in pleasing the fans. And by going back 20 years in time to a sound that you had in your youth is never a good idea for any artist. And it's a bad look on Rivers Cuomo on this record, desperately trying to get that sound and that look and that feel of what it was like in 1994. I don't think it works. I think there's a few singles on this record that are really good, but this is not a great Weezer album. It's a try-it record for me. Wow, I really I disagree with you, Greg. I think it's it's a fine Weezer album. I think you have to discount a lot of what Rivers says because he knows he's got this fan base out there and he sometimes says things to them. It's not a trio of themes, my relationship with my band, my relationship with women, my relationship with my father, because there's also the best song written about the American Revolution. The British are coming. Since <laughs> I the, knew you'd like that. Since the musical 1776, <laughs> the only musical I actually like. Right, And there's a great song about Cleopatra. And, and talking about that in terms of relationships. It's a great song, though. It is a great song. It's full of hooks. I have never. Look, I don't worship the altar of Pinkerton. It was a fine album. I thought the Blue album was much better. He's a pop genius. There are so many hooks on this record. I don't turn to him for great wisdom. You know, he's got a handful of themes, and he's just having fun. I really like this album. I, I like it more than Hurley, to be certain. I like it more than maybe anything since the Green album. So it's an enthusiastic buy it from me. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Just across the way, island lost the sea. Now I'm stranded on my own. Stranded far from home. Well, come on. Do you remember? We were shipwrecked together. Stranded out so far from home. Stranded, yeah, mama. As often as possible, one of us here on Sound Opinions takes a trip to the desert island and plays you a song we cannot live without. Mr. Cott, you are banished to exile today. What do you got for us? <laughs> I'm going to pay tribute to Paul Revere of uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders, uh, the namesake of that garage rock band from the 60s, dead at the age of 76 of cancer. He wasn't the singer in the band, but he was the keyboardist and really the ringleader. He dubbed himself the madman of rock and roll. When when you look at the old videos of this group, nobody is having more fun than Paul Revere on stage. But it was extremely tongue-in-cheek, and, and it was coupled with these great songs. They were one of the first great garage rock bands in the United States, that whole era of the 60s that was typified by these bands forming in garages and playing rudimentary three- and four-chord songs. They were among the very best. They had 15 top 40 hits, Just Like Me, Kicks, Hungry, 
But the song that I want to play goes back to their very earliest days, and it was a huge cult hit. It wasn't a big chart success, but a number of artists picked up on it as kind of a, a touchstone of the early garage rock era. It was a song called Louis Go Home. And the band, which had originated in Idaho, where, where Revere and Mark Lindsay, the singer in the band, were living, eventually moved to the Pacific Northwest, which was Kingsman country. Mm. The Kingsman had just put out Louie Louie. Paul Revere and Lindsay had gone to see a couple of their shows and said, we're going to write a, a response song. They wrote a song called Louie Go Home, which is just this raucous garage rock response. Uh, later on, covered by a young David Bowie, the Who covered it, numerous garage rock revival bands in subsequent decades did their own versions of this song. Here is the original, the one the band released in 1964, Louie Go Home from Paul Revere and the Raiders on Sound Opinions. That was Louie Go Home in tribute to the Paul Revere and the Raiders leader, dead at age 76, Greg's Desert Island jukebox pick for the week. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to dig up some buried treasures, some under-the-radar albums that you need to hear. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, and Anthony Martinez. Our intern is Alex Claiborne. And special thanks to Adam Yaffe.
sound opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. John Boshi, just heard your best guitar riff show. Good show. An excellent choice to include R&B and funk guitar riffs. But seriously, you didn't include Give It Up or Turn It Loose by James Brown, guitar by the great Jimmy Nolan. You mentioned Jimmy Nolan in passing, but those riffs and the spare arrangement around the guitar totally redefined funk. That is probably the thing that most influenced Afropop across Africa, especially West Africa, including Fela Kuti, Geraldo Pino, Sonny Ade, many, many others up to this day. It redefined American funk. Sly Stone's later sound, George Clinton, Miles Davis, Prince, Red Hot Chili Peppers. And that is the quintessential funk guitar riff. in North Carolina just listened to the Riff Show. I'd have to say my choice for best riff, a band that I know you two guys like, and that'd be Mastodon. My choice would be off their 2009 release, Crack the Sky, and that song would be Divinations. I think Divinations has the most complete guitar idea I've heard in probably the last 10 or 12 years. It's a riff that starts kind of complicated but develops throughout the whole song. Never stops, never starts developing and adapting into a different part all the way through the solo and then back to the riff again. So that'd be my choice, Mastodon Divination. Thanks. Hi, my name is Rick Neva. I'm calling from Morrisville, North Carolina. wanted to comment about your show, about the iconic guitar riffs. I uh, hope I'm not being redundant here in suggesting Mick Ronson. I don't know how anybody can come up with more iconic guitar riffs than he did in a three-year period between the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and Diamond Dogs. Three albums in three years. He came up with the Gene Genie, Ziggy Stardust, Suffragette City, Rebel Rebel, Panic in Detroit, Cracked Actor, and my favorite, Moon Age Daydream. Break out in a Moon Age Daydream, oh yeah. Don't fake it, baby. Lay the real thing on me. The church of my love is such a holy place to be. Make me, baby. ton of guitarists who don't come up with that many iconic guitar riffs in a career, much less than three years, so that's just a staggering achievement. Take care, and I'll keep listening. Hi guys, my name is Pierre Robert. I just loved your recent show on guitar riffs. Such a great idea, and you're right, you can't get to all of them. One that occurred to me, and I don't think you got to mention it, was Sweet Jane. 
not the studio version by Velvet Underground, but the live version from the Rock and Roll Animal album. The guitar player's name is Steve Hunter, and he just nails it with this wicked solo. And then the solo breaks into that part that is just the perfect guitar, air guitar riff, particularly. I wanted to share that with you, and I thank you for your program. So thanks for what you do and uh, all the best. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.